A, they're tired and B, they, they only own a, a percentage of their company anymore. So they're not really emotionally invested in the success of their own company anymore. So that's kind of the corporate cannabis and kind of what the Canadian uh, pub co's have done uh, is really come down and try to uh, consolidate the manufacturing and the, the, the grow. But really what they're buying is a lot of uh, $20 an hour employees who are not emotionally invested in the success of, of the company. So it creates a, an interesting environment. From the PodConnect studios, high in the Rockies at the beautiful Beaver Creek Resort, it's the Raising Cannabis Capital Show. Today on MJ Bulls, we are joined by Rick Battenberg, the Chief Investment Officer at Clientel Capital Management Group. Rick, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the show last time. Well, so much has changed since the last time you were here, which crazy enough, is was almost to the day exactly two years ago. I was just looking at my notes. For our listeners who missed it last time, Clientel Capital is one of the early cannabis VC firms, which was launched back, I believe, in 2015. So that's right. We actually made our first investment privately in 2014, but we formally formed the fund in 2015. Well, back then, there weren't many cannabis VC firms. Everyone was pretty much a generalist, but we're seeing more and more firms are more niche today. What is your investment thesis today, and has it changed much over the last seven years? Yeah, absolutely. So previous to this, I worked for Merrill Lynch, and I, I did a lot of the syndicate work, so the IPOs and buying of the new issues. I looked at a lot of deals, and I happened to be in Colorado at the time and really thought there was a capital inefficiency in cannabis, which was really the opportunity. And what I mean by that was at the time, you had to be a two-year Colorado resident to invest into legal cannabis. And I theorized that by using a blind pool venture structure, the Marijuana Enforcement Division of Colorado would allow us to have a licensed person at the, at the head of it, as long as the fund contributors, the LPs, didn't have any control over the assets. And really, the reason I did that was because there was no diligence baseline in the cannabis industry. Really, nobody knew what a good dispensary or a manufacturing grow, what, what anything should do, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was going to be changing regulations. So I tried to create the most flexible funding instrument that I possibly could to navigate through this, this new world. So we actually became the first qualified institutional fund in the United States to hold a license inside of a fund. And, and so when we talk about change, we bought everything in the supply chain. And that wasn't really because we necessarily wanted exposure to everything. It was because we, we really needed to understand the business. So we bought everything. So grow, extraction, dispensary, packaging, hardware, compliance, training, everything across the supply chain of cannabis. And we operated the businesses to establish a diligence baseline. We did that for about two and a half years. And then we really figured out, we're going, okay, where in the supply chain of cannabis do you want to be? And what's going to be the most important component of that supply chain in the next 20, 30 years? And where we kind of landed on was you don't necessarily want to grow in the grain for the gray goose. And you don't really want to own the liquor store that only has geographic loyalty. You really want to own the brand and the distribution because that has the most scalability. And so we got a little more focused with our allocation strategy and started looking for brands that we thought had the most appeal to new users without you know alienating existing users and and the category we chose was vape so we found the clear out of california which got widely popular in the california medical market from 2013 when it was invented until now and then obviously one of one of the biggest brands in the world now but the reason that was important because we started with the brand right great adoption with new users it's in a format that people are familiar with 
And it didn't alienate kind of heavy users because it's very strong. And for us, it was about the brand and establishing an emotional relationship with the consumer. So looking for brands that had that emotional relationship with the consumer. And then additionally, penetrating as many shelves as possible. So to be ubiquitous, you want to be everywhere. So the strategy for us for the fund was really going, okay, how do we navigate this changing environment? Because we know that the regulations and the, the market is not going to be the same in 20 years from a regulatory perspective. So it is, it is our thesis that Colorado represents the best Keynesian economics for consumer-driven market theory of all the different markets. Because you can't move THC over state lines, you really don't have the ability to produce the same product over state lines because this is an organic product that even genetically identical plants grown under different conditions will produce different relative weight to volumes of mm -hmm. major and minor cannabinoids and terpene profiles. What that means is that I don't care what celebrity is endorsing your brand and I don't color how shiny your package is, unless you pre-produce the same consumer experience in multiple accessible markets, you don't have a brand, which is what really was the linchpin of why we chose the clear as the tip of the spear, if you will, to gain mm -hmm. market share was because we can produce this product the same in every state. So whether you buy our pen in Boston or Vegas or Denver, Detroit or LA, it's exactly the same because we can create it from any starting biomass. And that's really the wedge, right? The wedge is gain the consumer's trust with the brand identity, gain the distribution relationships to the dispensaries, and then you can expand the breadth and depth of that offering. Once you've had the consumer's trust, of course, mm -hmm. right? then they trust the brand. And that, that was really the fun strategy was looking for brands, plural, that have a, a really good established relationship with the consumer and or um, have dominated their accessible market for a roll-up strategy. So we've kind of run in parallel two different strategies mm -hmm. so that as regulations shift, we can consolidate them and and really enter the global market. So the clearest file trademarks in over 45 countries and approved in over 18. Although we only take a very slim percentage of the retail sales are, we don't really care and because the key is owning the consumer because we've maintained the equity of the what will be the consolidating company uh, really for the next big raise. So we've held off on taking any institutional capital really mm -hmm. so that we can maintain the cap table and maintain control as we're navigating this complex environment. Because obviously with a capital light model only taking 10% royalty on, on sales of we weren't trying to shoot the moon out on revenue necessarily. What we were trying to shoot the moon out is selling as many vape pens to as many consumers and it's earning as many shelves as we, as we possibly can. Because we know that with ubiquitous legalization, we are strategically positioned to be the best option for rolling up our, our license manufacturing and, and moving that needle from 10% up to 100% of, of retail. That's kind of the, the strategy of, of the fourth fund mm -hmm. was really focusing on brands and distribution, which obviously got more focused in 2017 with the acquisition of Clear. And then in 2019, we consolidated using a 351 transaction as part of an umbrella strategy, some of the non-plant touching portfolio companies and the intellectual property to clear alongside some of the round lot shareholders that we would need to qualify for a potential public listing in the, in the future when the market dictated that it was the right time mm -hmm. to do that. So 2019, we consolidated and formed Clear Cannabis Inc. Uh, that maintains the uh, intellectual property of the clear and oversees the uh, marketing distribution and sales of that product by different 
relationships with either contract manufacturers or licensed partners in the state, depending on what the regulatory environment looks like. So creating that very flexible funding instrument was really the key to being able to make quick decisions. And that really just comes down to capital strategy. So something that's kind of interesting, I think, about cannabis in general is that it's got a lot less to do with cannabis than you think. <laughs> it has so much <laughs> It really does. It's, it has so much more to do with understanding how to navigate this very complex regulatory environment and, and accessing funding. And so many cannabis companies I've looked at got in trouble really quick, partially because of the impact of 280E is very real. It really stifles businesses' ability to grow. And for those listeners who don't know what 280E is, 280E prevents licensed cannabis businesses from writing certain expenses off against their top line revenue, which effectively raises their their tax rate, sometimes north of 50%, which can really, really make an impact on the cash flow of the businesses, especially when the cost of capital historically over the last eight years has been so astronomically high. The debt market, the equity market, the, the cost of capital is extraordinarily high. Companies have given away a lot of their equity. That's why you're seeing a lot of consolidation as the, the original ownership groups, are, they're happy to take stock because A, they're tired and B, they, they only own a, a percentage of their company anymore. So they're not really emotionally invested in the success of their own company anymore. So that's kind of the corporate cannabis I and mean, kind of what the Canadian uh, pubcos have done uh, it's really come down and try to uh, consolidate the manufacturing and the, the the grow, but really what they're buying is a lot of uh, twenty dollar an hour employees who are not emotionally invested in the success of of the company. So it creates a an interesting environment. Just based on what you just said, you can just feel how hands on you are with the clear and all of your investments. <laughs> Taking what you know right now and what you're seeing right now, over the next 12 months, do you see any new trends or opportunities for investors? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very much my position that uh, the most undervalued asset in cannabis right now are brands that are dominating their accessible market that are still private. And that really goes back to you know, kind of my original strategy, which is the, the company that owns the consumer is going to win the day. Largely, those private investments have been inaccessible. To, uh, to the private investor. So finding ways to get involved with those companies and, and take positions in the private companies that are licensed, that have uh, distribution and relationships with consumers is a really big opportunity for investors that are looking at cannabis because those companies are, are going to grow. And uh, because of the restrictive capital environment, they're hungry for capital. It's very difficult to raise capital. The equity market in cannabis is really tough. And part of that is the heat has kind of come off cannabis with the the contraction of the Canadian pub. The multiples have come down significantly. When we last spoke, the multiples in the cannabis space were astronomical on top line revenue, and they've come back down to, to earth. So there was a lot of investors that got, for lack of a better term, I'm going to say burned. Their investments are negative. So some of the more experienced cannabis investors who took positions in those pubcos are, although they're watching their companies perform from a revenue perspective, the stock has not mirrored that performance. The equity markets are tough, but that really does create an opportunity for a private investor that's willing to do the diligence or if they're willing to, to trust somebody like myself to allocate capital into private companies. There's a big opportunity there if you have a 
unique diversity of skill set and information and connections in the cannabis industry. I've got a, a laundry list of deals and really quite good justification for uh, why they'd be a good deal. But you really need an expert that can navigate the cannabis industry and contextualize the opportunity for you because it really is a it's a complex environment and it's changing all the time. So you really need someone who is hands-on to, to guide you in those investments. We hear that all the time, that it's, it's <laughs> this, is, this is not like it was five years ago. If you don't understand this industry, you don't have time to learn it because by the time you do, it's you know, already changed. It yeah. depends on uh, how quick a learner you are, I suppose. But there's, there's always another deal, right? There's always opportunity. Cannabis industry is not done growing. It's not even close. And you know, what's unique is that the U.S. being on the forefront of the cannabis space, we're going to bring a lot of these brands to the world. And that's going to that's gonna change the, the nature of these companies as well. And also a huge opportunity because the United States' biggest export is our culture. And, and, and we're going to be exporting the, the culture of cannabis to the world by our nature. I know there's going to be an opportunity for the cannabis equivalent of Budweiser, Coke, or Pepsi. And mm-hmm. so if you want to get in early, and this is still early, Probably good idea to work with somebody that's got seven years of experience and we'll have all clientele capital management groups info in the show notes. So if you're yeah. one of those companies, one of those private companies that are looking for investment or you're an investor that wants to work with a good team, I'm sure somebody from Rick's team will be happy to speak with you. Rick, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope your dad feels better. Me too. Me too. He, he unfortunately got COVID. We'll be lighting up our fifth fund here towards the end of this quarter, and we will be looking at accredited investor LP contributions. So if anybody wants to, to allocate into a private cannabis, it'll actually have a, a hedged long-only component as well. And really, that's to maintain liquidity. And I think to really access the opportunity of cannabis, you need to be able to allocate into private and public. And, and luckily, I've got experience in both. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Dan. You're, you're fantastic. Your guests are you're always fantastic. So, you know, honored to be a part of it. And, you know, hopefully uh, we're, we're going to talk about some more exciting stuff here in another couple of years. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed. And I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.